Welcome to this edition of Church Grammar. Today we talk with Matthew Arbo back at ETS in November, pulling this one out of the archives next to Glenn Butner's couple of good conversations I had in my hotel room at ETS. Matt teaches at Oklahoma Baptist University, teaches theology and ethics there. We talk in this episode about a wide range of things, primarily about Christian ethics. What is the definition of Christian ethics? What are some good and bad examples of Christian ethics? We talk about how that plays out in the way that we vote, the way that we view politics, the way we view culture. He and I also talk about Oliver O'Donovan, kind of the greatness of Oliver O'Donovan's career and the fact that Matthew did a PhD with him and sort of how he enjoyed that time, how what he learned from that time, what it was like studying with O'Donovan. And then at the end, we talk a little bit about CrossFit. And I just ask him as a CrossFitter, is CrossFit a cult? And he gives a surprising answer to that, I'll be honest. This episode is presented by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see their latest releases. We're also sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that Bible translation. Here's my conversation with Matt Arbo. But first, no big deal. I am here in my hotel room at ETS with Matt Arbo. And Matt, I thought we could talk about Christian ethics, philosophy, politics, Oliver O'Donovan, Stanley Hauerwas, just whatever we normally talk about when we're just texting each other throughout the day. That's it. Uh, minus some things that would get us fired. So we'll, we'll keep <laughs> right. that off there. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that you talk about a lot that I think is really interesting, I think is helpful for people to think through that I don't think they think through very often is, you know, what is Christian ethics? There are a lot of theologians who do versions of ethics. There are theologians and biblical scholars who call themselves ethicists, uh, all that kind of stuff. So kind of what, what do you, how do you view Christian ethics? I think you have a kind of unique perspective on what you think it is and should be versus kind of what it's been posed as in evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, so my working definition uh, is Christian ethics is theological reflection on the moral life. We find ourselves in the world. We need to know how to live in the world on terms that um, are not strictly of the world's deciding. And Christian ethics supposes that what God has said should have some application to how we live our lives. So um, it's not just theological reflection on the moral life. It's acting as though what God has said makes a claim on human agency. And God has also said how agency itself might express itself in the world too. Mm -hmm. So God has said something about his world and about what he wants for it and these sorts of things. So, uh, but that basic operative definition is the one I kind of keep coming back to theological reflection on the world. Okay. So, so next step is what you don't have to name names or books or anything like that, but what are some versions of things that are called Christian ethics that you would say, that's not really Christian ethics, that's something else. And what are some positive versions of, you can maybe take a topic and say, here's one way you'd handle it that you would say, eh, it's not really ethics. That's theology. That's something else. And uh, what are some some positive examples? Yeah. Um, so a, a good bit of particularly evangelical ethics has tended to be um, kind of semi-pietistic. So it's focused very much on a personal ethic, not lying, 
not overeating, whatever, whatever it is. Stuff so, that any Christian should say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, don't do things you ought not do. And, yeah. sort of, and that that's typically what ethics is thought to be. That you just shouldn't do the things you know you ought not to do, and you should do the things you ought to do without a whole lot of sort of theoretical work. You know, um, that's a bit of an oversimplification, admittedly, but um, that's tended to be a, a central focus for evangelical ethics. Um, and I, I'd say that that's fine. It's not a bad thing to think about. Um, you know, what our obligations are to each other, what are, what are even our obligations to ourselves, to our church. But um, that's not enough to frame up a holistic picture of our moral life, right? But both of what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be, what God has said about us. So um, that's one part of it, the sort of semi-pietistic stuff. Um, and that's kind of connected with traditions, you know, Puritan traditions. Uh, Puritanism is an, actually a profound uh moral tradition too that's there's lots of reflection on how puritan theology shapes life of the church and, and polity and these kinds of things but also it's a really significant moral tradition um and uh and it can be relied upon i mean you know in really powerful ways to sort of help us think about that um but again it's just part of a picture and um so so the other part i think i might say too about um you know evangelical perspectives is uh, it kind of it can sometimes be just rigidly biblicist, so like ruled application, sort of you know chapter and verse kind of citations. And there there are places in which that's functional, right? Where you could just take a precept and say, well, you know, this is what you ought not to do, right? You shouldn't uh, lie to people in principle. You shouldn't steal in principle. And you could use the Decalogue as a great catalog, for, you know, for that. Right. But, um, have to be careful naturally, as we you know I think as we know about um, how we're going to. De- interpret text and what and particularly in, in, in our own moral experience but th- so those are so, so like the puritanism the pietism mm-hmm. the sort of biblicism those are in, in themselves good uh, provided they don't become sort of isolated and totalizing to the whole of the moral picture we want to frame yeah so so what would be an example of something that you would say i as a christian ethicist here is what i do or here is how i would approach it here's my method that would be different from what you're describing right now that is kind of typically called Christian ethics. Yeah. So uh, you need the whole of the biblical account as a narrative to the good news and what Christ has done. So in uh, there's a striking sentence in the first, um, it's the first sentence in Oliver O'Donovan's Resurrection and Moral Order. He says that the foundations of Christian ethics have to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, so the gospel of Jesus Christ has to be the foundation of a Christian ethics. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Christian ethic, right? Yeah. And I mean, that that's always resonated with me. Um, so we begin with the good news in Jesus Christ, that he has become man. He has suffered under Pontius Pilate and has died and risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will rule forever. I mean, the, the basic narrative of the gospel becomes the centerpiece around which we then interpret the whole, right, of the text. And and in that way, we see not just a Christ who has lived in a particular way and died a particular death and has been raised and lives victorious, but um, has also charted a path for the church to live in that he has set. Um, so we find that in the Bible um, a profound theological texture that is there in the in narrative, it's there in all the genres. Um, and that means that as we try to stake our own way forward in life as individual agents, but also as a collective, as a community, a particular community of faith, that means we're um, we're thinking along the way. Right? The Bible is this resource that we sort of live from, we draw on, it is part of our life, it's, we feast on it. And the Bible has all these wonderful ways of describing that. And one of the powerful things it does is it gives us a way, a sort of purchase on life, where our agency isn't stranded. We're not marooned on 
uncertain dunes of uncertainty, but we have this resource, right? That God has said there is good to be had in this life. And um, so, so Christian ethics can just presume, right? So, or, and, and proceed on the assumption that um, what God has said makes a claim on who we are and on what our purpose is, right? And that we are ordered to a particular kind of life in light of what Christ has done. Um, that's a little, I mean, I think that's, and admittedly, admittedly somewhat oversimplified, but that's, yeah. the be- that's the beginning of how I try to reshape that. Yeah. So then that plays into, I guess, you know, how you love your neighbor, how you, your political theology, how you start viewing, how you vote, what you yeah. vote about, what you care about, how you view certain hot topic issues in culture. So talk a little bit about, you know, there, there's always, there's sort of the bifurcation that happens in Christianity a lot that says, if you are a Christian, you will be, you will vote this way. And, and that goes both ways. It goes Republican and Democrat. It goes independent. It goes, if you're a Christian, you won't vote at all. You'll just back away because that's the, that's the world. That's not what we need to be worried about. All that kind of stuff. How does Christian ethics, how, how does that inform your political theology? You particularly, not just you know, anybody, but how does, how does your view of Christian ethics kind of start going down the road of how you're applying it? Because it is one thing to say, well, yeah, I mean, Christian ethics is don't steal, don't lie. We all know that. There's a next step of how do you love your neighbor? How do you care about your neighbor? There's a next step of how do you vote? How do you, you know, it's, it's, it starts having these concentric circles that go out. So how does that infact, in, in, impact how you view political theology, how you view how you vote and how you engage? You don't have to say, these are the, you know, this is how I vote or yeah. this is who I vote for. But just like, how, how do we think through that stuff? Because I think a lot of times people think, okay, I've got to think, if, if this is a Republican slash conservative issue, this is probably where I need to be because this is biblical. Or... If this is a progressive liberal Democrat issue, I need to vote this way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just not that simple yeah, at all. Yeah. And and that's where we tend to push each other away instead of saying there might be some sort of general principle, even if we vote differently, that can kind of help us chart a path through it. So how do you handle that personally? Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty Augustinian in this way. So, I mean, I... I um, I, I tend to think about how we are in the world is principally as disciples, as students of Jesus Christ, who, uh, and I've, I've sort of drawn this from uh, the late Dallas Willard, who we're learning to live life um, as he would live it if he were us, mm. which I've, I've liked that turn of phrase for quite a long time, yeah, right? That's good. Where we're, we're trying to um, occupy the world and live in the world in ways which God has called us to and invited us to. Uh, so what we're doing, is that's a learning enterprise, but we're also listening and seeing. So that it's, a, it's actually an ongoing activity. And um, and our, our political situation is... Um, is is kind of amorphous sometimes. It's it sometimes feels really fluid. It sometimes feels really fraught. Um, however, like the call to discipleship is precisely into the world on those conditions, not away from it, right? And so, uh, when we think about say the, the example you use of voting, um, we we then encounter that decision, right, of say whether to vote. May I cast this vote? Well, it better be because. Um, in the conditions of my discipleship, Jesus has said, this is what you should do. And there are individuals who, I think, frankly, might decide they ought not to. They mm-hmm. ought, they should abstain because they can't in good conscience um, cast that vote. Or maybe they feel, I mean, someone could ostensibly even feel that uh, because of what Paul says in Romans 13, they cannot at this particular stage say that um, Christ uh, both appoints the authorities and that you know, democratic populists do. And uh, because they can't reconcile that tension, they don't, I mean, yeah, right. you can see how this sort of thing yeah, goes. Yeah. And, and and that means too, that um, there's a sense of what 
Jesus says is good for us to do. And um, it, and we may even begin to see voting a right in that respect, right? So that we see ourselves as citizens, and one of the things we do is vote. Um, but we also begin to see, like, actually, you know, given the kind of political power the church has been endowed with, the the most important thing we could do is pray. I mean, the comparable power in prayer politically relative to voting is, I mean, they're inco- they're incomparable. Um, but we endow voting with tremendous efficacy. Uh, now, I'm not saying that, you know, you should not vote and go pray on election day, <laughs> but you, you should definitely have a sense that this is um, what Christ has invited me to do as a disciple. And I can do this in full conscience, realizing that this is the good thing to do, not yeah. just not just an obligation. So it's an important way of like sort of reframing what the nature of obligation is, because I mean, we have a deep sense like, oh, well, I'm a member of a, I'm a member of civic society. I'm a citizen. This is uh, something that people have fought and died for this and this, this right to vote. Uh, I got to do it, you know, and it's important, I think, to feel a sense of responsibility and civic draw, provided that doesn't overwhelm all the other goods which Christ has called us to, to affirm and to live out. Yeah, that's That's good. just an example with voting. You know? Yeah, and that's where, you know, uh, and I'm kind of, what I'm thinking even personally is, you know, the midterms were not long ago, and there were certain candidates and certain people where I thought, I want to vote and I want to be involved, and I know that voting always requires compromise. Like, if you're not feeling compromised at all, there might be something, you may not be thinking very far yeah. through it because yeah. there's no perfect candidate, there's no perfect party, there's no perfect way to handle some issues. But I felt there was there was a couple times where I felt like, man, both sides are so extreme that I don't even know if I can vote for either person in good conscience. I don't even know what to do. And so that was, you know, that was weighing on me a lot trying yeah. to figure out. And I ended up ultimately casting votes for different people. But I still, I, I you know, I've, I've felt like I've personally sort of slowly come out of, I was raised in a democratic home and was, I mean, the first, one of my earliest memories is my grandma and my mom arguing over Bush and Clinton yeah. in 92. Like, I yeah. remember that well and just being like, oh my gosh, like grandma and mom are yelling at each other uh-huh. and didn't have a full concept other than I have a very vivid mental picture of the two guys' faces on the screen and my grandma and my mom yelling yeah. at, at each other about them. Then I became a Christian. It was, no, you vote Republican. Here's why, yada, yada. I was kind of caught up in that for a while. Sort of went more of the independent route eventually of just sort of like, I've, I've got a I don't want to just be tied so closely. Yeah. And I'm just continuing to try to figure out, I don't want to evolve out of sort of having convictions or having... So how do you how do you recommend people think through that stuff? Because I think for pastors particularly, I feel like pastors need to be at least publicly independent, for lack of a better word. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think pastors need to be in their pulpits telling people who to vote for. Mm-hmm. That's just a conscience thing that you're really getting into. And so as a mm-hmm. pastor, I always feel like I need to step out of it you know, in the midterms, you know, there were people in our church saying, who are you voting for? What do you think about these people? And I try to be informative without being, you know, dogmatic or polemical and saying, like, here's what you should do. Here's what I'm going to do necessarily. So how do you how do you think through that? Because I think Christians oftentimes just vote the party line one way or the other, or they take mm-hmm. one issue and say, this is my issue and I don't care about anything else. And they're not really conflicted at some level about the compromise they're having to make. So how do you recommend people just sort of think through that? This is just for me personally, yeah. just helping me think through it. Because I think it's something we don't think about enough, but it, it, it almost is, I, maybe I think about it too much. I don't know. No, it's really important. And it's, I think, kind of thrust itself onto particularly the evangelical churches self-understanding since 2016 right. I mean, or even before that. I mean, um, we have this peculiar position um, where, where a large body of people 
um, and who are believed to have a, a significant amount of common. And uh, we have particular political aspirations that we would like to come true or we'd like to see realized. And um, so it's really important, actually, that we, we're thinking about how we're exercising our citizenship as people. And uh, that's why I, I say it's so important to have this strong centralized account of discipleship so that we are sure that we are acting in obedience. So that's what, I mean, that's, that's what a vote has to be. It has to be an act of obedience. And uh, it better not be an act of, um, <clears throat> an act of subversion yeah, or yeah. something else. So, um, I, I mean, on, on one level, it, it means being a disciple means that the vote isn't the last word mm. on what's going to happen in mm-hmm. this world, mm-hmm. you know, and and that and that's freeing in a lot of ways, right? That whoever it is that comes, um, Christ's kingdom is unassailable. It's set. Like there's there's nothing that can prevail against those yeah. gates, and and so we're sure in that. Now there there, there are other goods we want. There are goods we want to protect, particularly. So lots of uh, evangelicals are, are are plainly motivated and mobilized by. By life issues, and rightly so. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that will mean, as example you raised, um, thinking really carefully about and, and examining who it is that affirms life and on what terms. Uh, so a candidate may, on one level, be say pro-life, and a natural question is great. So they're Republican, they're pro-life. How have they gone about exercising that position? You know, what have they done concretely, as, as, as opposed to just in, in addition to what they've said? That's examinable. Is there a record for it? Uh, that's one way of exercising good conscious citizenship. Um, and that could be for the other party as well as the other party, um, this candidate or whomever it is also displayed an interest in protecting life in particular ways. And they're, you know, there likely are, uh, what are those? And then this, then you're in a place of actual comparison where a person can reach a judicious decision. That was a judicial, judicial, judicial system, a judicial, a judicial <laughs> we're decision. Never gonna, we're no, never going to get there. I hope, this, I hope this stays in. A judicial decision. I'm going to get it right. I will not edit it. <laughs> Uh, where um, they know in at least reasonable confidence based on what they've they've done and good faith that they that they can say yes and that's it's important actually to understand the actual mechanics of voting too matter right I mean uh, some have thought that you could sort of cast a dissent ballot that's not how voting works you can't vote against anybody voting is right. the vote of affirmation um, so I I think in a lot of ways what's really important like right now is a sort of reframing of what it means to be civic participants. Where we where we can see from a little bit of a distance what it is that we're is laying claim to us um, as people living in two kingdoms, um, so we're not over endowing it, but we're not. But now that we're under endowing the efficacy of our temporal citizenship. Yeah, because it's easy to give up when you just get frustrated. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about this, just sort of how this plays out. You know, one of the conversations we did a, a thing at our church recently. Every so often on a Sunday afternoon after church, we say, hey, ask us anything. The pastors will all get on stage and we'll answer any question you have, right? So they can text in questions. People can ask questions. We had somebody ask about social justice stuff. Okay, what do I do with this? I, you know, this guy in our church, he said, I have a coworker. We strongly disagree on social justice and how that's supposed to work out uh, in, in terms of how the church acts and even how you vote and what social justice is and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, you know, one of the things that we disagree on is the Good Samaritan. I mean, that's like a, a like a classic place where you can really figure out how somebody approaches things based on how they handle the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. story. And so I kind of said, you know, on the one hand, that's a great that is a great kind of place to start because it gives you a, a chance to understand each other. And you typically find out that you're actually not as far off as you thought you were from other people. Mm-hmm. It's very often the case. So how do you 
thinking through your Christian ethics, you're talking about, you know, on the one hand, Christian ethics is not just pietistic. This is how it affects me. These are the decisions I make, but it's so much more pervasive yeah. and it's built on biblical storylines, not just passages. And it's yeah. built on theological concepts, not just a couple of verses here and there. So yeah. like the Good Samaritan is a place to start, but it's not the place to start. Yeah. How do you, how do you advise people thinking through that kind of stuff? Okay. I'm looking at the Good Samaritan. Clearly there's something here about I'm supposed to love this sojourner. I'm supposed to love this person who's an outsider. But when I go to the voting booth, depending on which side I vote, I'm helping some people, maybe hurting others, et cetera. This might be, this might be the same question I just asked you. But I feel like it's, a, it, it's one of those linchpin places that we're in right now where people are starting to weaponize Bible verses yeah. you know, for, either, for either side instead yeah. of saying, like, how can we agree on some things? So what are just some scattershot thoughts on the thing I just threw at you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a, it, you're kind of inviting me to ex- extend a discussion on part of that. So, I mean— yeah. Um, on one level, right? I mean, social justice is kind of an interesting phrase in contemporary currency, and in part because, I mean, on one level, all justice is social. Yeah, right? I, kind of, that, I kind of like recommended like just get that word out of yeah, like, take yeah. that term off. Let's just off talk the about table. justice. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Because because and, and it's part it's really charged, and it's almost impossible to have a clear sense of who's going to be taking that idea in what way. So all justice is social, then we'll just talk about justice. Now, in that case, th- then we're talking about what justice entails. And um, justice is a virtue in the classical tradition, right? Uh, and Thomas and Augustine and elsewhere. But um, also in the Christian tradition, um, justice is described as right order. That uh, What we want and wanting justice is we want a right order, which says something about what is true and what is good for human yeah, beings. Yeah, a God who takes things out of chaos and brings them to order. Yeah, that's right. We want an ordering to a good. And um, and so when we're when we're thinking about something like um, voting for, you know, or, or even just partic- participating as a citizen, voting could be one mechanism or one way in which that's achieved. But um, just thinking of our own common citizenship, um, how are we for other people? And so there's this interlacing of love and justice, right? Where we see others, uh, uh, one of Bonhoeffer's better phrases, we see others only as those to whom Christ comes. Yeah, right. Which is, uh, I've just it's really been helpful mm. for me. And um, that frames up who the person is. The Samaritan is a great example of that, right? And and yet we're also concerned at a political level that everyone has an opportunity to flourish, it's impossible as a Christian to say there are some people who I don't want to flourish. Yeah, right. And if, if we're willing to say that everyone should flourish, then we also want to seek conditions in which that's possible for everyone, and that will mean a little bit of sacrifice, a significant amount of sacrifice. Sometimes, um, I sometimes remind students of um, just how radical the self-sacrifice was in the early period of the church, where it's illegal to be Christian, but um, they're nevertheless committed to a radical course of self-sacrifice in order for other people to come to know the good news, for their children to survive, or for the church to advance, or whatever. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, that's a slightly different paradigm, slightly different point, right, in history. But there's there's nevertheless the same call on radical self-sacrifice, and the church just has to simply learn that. And I don't know how it will, um, but that'll mean in in the course of things. Um, coming to take seriously the love commandment, but it'll also mean acquiring a virtue of justice where we see something like symmetry in relationships. And so we we actually come to want that right ordering. And so it's not then, this is the key thing, it's not a competition between different claimants of entitlement, right? right? And and so it's not this thing about winners and losers. It's, it's, it's more like what Paul says in Philippians 2, um, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus, that each consider others better than themselves. Um, and that's as stirring 
and challenging an exhortation as I can think of in, in terms of uh, in terms of what we are and, and can actually do as active citizens. Um, and that just frames it all up differently where it's not a contest, but it's an endeavor and bringing everyone to a place where they can flourish and, and, it, and it maybe even bring everyone to a place where they can receive anew the good news in Jesus Christ. I think what you're getting at is sort of what, yeah, that's where people so often just say, I want this party to win. I want yeah. this thought process to win. I want this person to win. Yeah. And they're not wrestling through the implications of, of how that works out. I think that's that's a really helpful way to think about it. So moving on a little bit kind of further down the road with that, we're just gonna take a we're just gonna take a trip down cool. ethical lane here. Christians in our culture, I think in some ways, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, I feel like we've been conditioned to say you have to pick a side, you have to vote this way, you have to care about this, this, that, and issue. And if you don't, you're not really a Christian or you're a liberal or you're a fundy or whatever. Yeah. How do we moving forward, we we've seen We've seen kind of the ugly side of it in the last couple of presidential elections. We've seen different versions of ugly sides of it, and it's probably not going to change. Like 2020 is there's going to be a re-election. There's going to be somebody else. 2024, there's going to be somebody else. And we're going to always have that tension of here's this president who I'm supposed to respect. Here's this senator I'm supposed to respect, whatever. And yet I have a really hard doing it because X, Y, Z, whether it's their character or whether it's, oh, he seems like a good guy, but his policies are just all over the map. And yeah. I don't believe in half of what he says. Yeah. How do we continue to be, you said, you know, voting is not an act of dissent and that's right. But how do we continue to be subversive in the midst of all of that? Because I think one of the things that, uh, that, that Paul seems to be laying out, at least in my mind, you know, he, it's really interesting how he doesn't attack Caesar that much. It's almost like Paul is kind of saying like, yeah, that's, Care, you know, you should respect the authorities. You should pray for your leaders, whatever. But he's really a lot more concerned about how are you loving each other? How are you loving your neighbor? How are you doing things in your everyday life? How are you worshiping Christ? How is he the Lord of your life? How are you avoiding idols? All of those kind of things. You know, in First Corinthians, Paul is much less concerned about who they're, uh, whether or not they're doing this, this, and that for Caesar, but whether or not Jews and Gentiles can just freaking get along yep. for a change. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And so, so what do what do you what are some of your thoughts on just how we get down that road where we say we need to be more subversive. I think there's just, to me, there's just no doubt that evangelicalism in general needs to unhitch a little bit from the political system. doesn't mean don't vote, obviously. Mm -hmm. just means like you got to pull back a little bit and, and readjust your focus because I think we tend to look at politics as a functional savior in a lot of ways. And if I just vote this way and I just give this way, all this stuff will work itself out and I can just go about my day and do my thing. How do we, how do we be subversive in the way that Paul is almost saying – there's a sense in which that's important. There's a sense in which that's not that important. How do we, do you, do you have any thoughts on how we find that balance in a way that's not, again, doesn't care too much and also doesn't not care enough, kind of like you said? Yeah. So while you're asking, while you mentioned all that, it um, caused me to think of the immediate context of Romans 13, which is the latter part yeah. of Romans 12, where Paul kind of is in that, what sometimes read as a series of kind of Christian ethical principles. Um that's not exactly what's going on because the latter part of that text, particularly, Paul's coming back again and again to the absolute central importance of peaceableness. Uh, if possible, so much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And that's an imperative statement. It's, it's imperatival. I mean, it's not like the church at Rome can say, like, you know, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, it's not like we could say like when when should we try to find violence? It's it's actually that there that violence is the thing which is 
is avoided. Yeah. And that actually, like just being a community of peace is subversive in our world, right? Where we actually seek the peace. I mean, it's it's as though Jesus meant what he said in the Beatitudes about peacemaking. <laughs> right. Right. That it's a it is an endeavor. It's something we seek to do. We seek to make peace. And um, that's not a bad word. It's not hippie jargon. It's a way to live, right? Yeah, Under yeah. the conditions. Jesus it's not is being weak. No. Yeah. Jesus is the prince of peace, after all. His kingdom will be a rule of peace. Um, and that's something we should take to heart. Uh, I, I also think that um, a comparably subversive attribute of the church should be hope. And uh, our world is desperate for hope. A sincere hope, not sort of misty-eyed yeah. wonder for something that's not yet come, but an actual hope in the things yet to be and the things that are, are soon to be and Christ's finalization and completion of all things. I mean, hope in um, in, in Christ's finished work. And that, that means that we, if, if that's true, if that's real, then whatever it is we think about our political endeavors is totally transformed, right, and reinterpreted because we, we no longer think that the political authority will one day get it right for us or one day get it right for, for the person I really care about or one day get it right for the political. Whatever it is we're over-expressing, whatever sort of hope we're investing in this imminent political authority, tempting as that has always been throughout Christian history, right, um, is is in the end misplaced. Right? We, we may place a particular kind of faith, a kind of faith in a particular person at a particular time, but we better be very careful about that, right? Because what we end up committing ourselves to is a person who is, and very often the case is particularly with political figures and political authorities, is an unpredictable character. Um, and yeah, because you could back somebody and two years later exactly right. cheat on their wife exactly or whatever right. else. Yeah. And, then, and then complicity becomes very stark right, in that respect. Um, so, but it, but but being that, that being that subversive community is just what happens when the Church of Jesus Christ participates fully in the life of the Spirit. <laughs> yeah, which is which means that voting is a part of the way that you love your just neighbor. It's not the way that you love your neighbor. Which part. we both have we've had conversations before yeah. about people who say the way to love your neighbor is to go vote. Yeah, and yes, that is a way to love your neighbor, but it's not the sole way. That's exactly. That's it. putting too much hope in in politics and yeah. in the system. Yeah. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, you did your your PhD under Oliver O'Donovan, who I, did. Who, I mean, you, we were we were we were having this conversation with a group of people earlier. I love to reference conversations that didn't happen on the podcast for other people. That's good. Uh, these are things we talked about when you weren't here, <laughs> but uh, but we were talking about how it, it's entirely possible that Oliver O'Donovan in a couple hundred years, the desire of the nations and resurrection of the moral order, are looked at as some of the most important books written in the 20th century. I mean, he's he's appreciated now, but I wonder if he is going to outlast, his books are even going to outlast his influence and even grow his influence long after he's gone, just because of the way the the way the culture is moving, the way politics are moving. Like he He's such a beacon of hope in so many ways, the way that he writes and the way that he frames these things. I mean, a lot of what you're saying is straight out of the kind of thing that O'Donovan is yeah, trying to get us true. to do. Not true. saying that you're not yeah, original no, no, or smart, true. but so what, what are some things that you've learned reading him, studying him, being around him? Do you think I'm exaggerating about how important he will be in a couple hundred years? He's not going to listen to this. So yeah, no, 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 I don't think, I don't think, it, I don't think it's an exaggeration <laughs> yeah. that he'll yeah. still be read. Yeah. Uh, not just because I've spent so much time with him and worked with him. There's nothing comes my way by, you know, exaggerate, but I do think that he, it, his work will be a part of what we see as a theological canon. Um, and why we do that is kind of 
inexpressible. Like why a book or a particular figure comes to occupy so much gra- or take so much gravity and attention and command so much discussion in the history of Christian theology. That's kind of, I mean, some, sometimes it's kind of inexpressible. Part of it's reasons and circumstance, part of it's just that person's pen, part of it's the theological atmosphere. But um, something what O'Donovan's doing in the latter 20th century resonates very widely across, not just within Christian ethics, which has um, been deeply enriched by his work, but um, across other theological disciplines too. And he's not felt like he had to constrict himself to one very small compartment of academic theology, but ventured out. So Desire of the Nations is deeply exeget- excuse me, exegetical in places. As is a as a tremendous amount of uh, of his other work, yeah, and he says very very explicitly that um, he has been doing Christian ethics as though the Bible has a first word, you know, that the Bible has something to say. That it's the source we keep turning back to. We sort of always have an eye to it, and um, and that that method is kind of unique in a lot of um, Christian ethics today, moral theology, today. and Christian theology, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and, and he's done that um, with great learnedness, I think. Um, there's a couple of comments that I hear pretty routinely about Oliver's work. I should, O'Donovan's work, uh, and uh, that is, um, it's striking to people just how much he's read, and that's true. It, I never had a sense that there was some particular discussion or feature of theological discourse that he hadn't had an extraordinary breadth of reading in, in like the original languages. And yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a learned scholar in theology. Uh, study with Henry Chadwick. Um, is Augustinian has spent his time in old texts, and part of what he's intended to do as a scholar is to draw scholars back to pre-modern Christian conceptions, so returning to these sources that are are sometimes neglected. Um, and all of those, all these, some of these more subtle projects that he's had, you know, just in method and intention and purpose, um, have been also been widely appreciated. So, so the so the first part of the question, no, I have no question that he'll be read widely. 200 years from now. And that will be hard to say about a significant number, you know, of theologians and re- religious scholars. I forgot about the other thing you were going to say. What oh, just, just what, you know, why, oh, what his, it was like why his method, it, yeah. yeah, and what was it like to study with him um, and learning the method and that stuff under him. Yeah, I mean, initially studying with him was extremely intimidating. Yeah, surely. I, mean, uh, I was a, so I was a philosophy student um, doing a lot of work in analytic theology before I wrote on, on truth theory and Rorty and Davidson. I was... I, I had enough familiarity, particularly with modern philosophy, that I didn't feel lost. But I, I just wasn't prepared for. Um, I, I wasn't prepared quite for that that approach. His approach to pedagogy, which is sort of mutual exploration. Um, but I, I, so there was a memorable moment uh, in one supervisory meeting where I had a question about something, or something came up. I think it had to do with the law, or natural law. And he went into a discussion about 16th, 17th century disputes about constitutionalism. And I mean, it was, it was all over the place. I mean, it seemed at, at the time, it seemed, I'm right, you know, I'm scratching stuff down. And he didn't tell me really anything directly about my question. But what he was doing, I figured out in retrospect, is he was showing me where I could begin to find right. like, the kind of questions I needed to ask. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So it's sort of, it's an it's a it is a sense that the student is in a particular place, and how to show them where to go without um, giving them answers. 
And and as a teacher, that is so alluring. I mean, now I now I know that I'm in a classroom. A student has a question, and I'm authority. I, I can tell them exactly what the answer is. Yeah. But to resist that temptation and instead to actually show how learning might better be achieved, that's the kind of thing that's like indispensable. Um, and and a demonstration of also what's possible for a Christian, a sincerely Christian scholar who devotes themselves to reading carefully and reading often and widely. Um, so those features, uh, I mean, and it, uh, so and it could be uh, surprisingly pastoral. He was a priest and uh, canon of Christ Church for a long time, and continues to preach in churches. So um, there's that element of it too that was, you know, that was really cherishable for me. So it was, I mean, all in all, it was a great experience. It was exactly what I needed at that point in life. Yeah, and look at you now. You're, yeah. the, you're the great ethicist of the Southern Baptist well, Convention listen, and beyond. Um, so what is what are some of your um, just things that you're working on, things that you're thinking about, some stuff that you think, man, these are these are important topics in Christian ethics and theology that I think need to be tackled. And typically that means that you're going to write the article or the book on it at some at some <laughs> point. That's what every scholar says. These are the problems in the world. These are the things that I want to solve. What are some yeah. things that are just like burning in your mind that you want to tackle that you think are important? And explain why, kind of yeah. why, you, why, why you think they're important. There's some burning st- So I've mentioned a few things that are, are really kind of pressing topics in Christian ethics that I'm not working on. And then I'll I'll mention a couple of things that I am working on. Um, so uh, one very interesting topic in Christian ethics today is stuff on complicity, um, how we share responsibility for a thing we seem to be once or twice removed from. Um, so voting is a good example of that, how we are complicit. But another one is in consumption. This raises interesting questions. If I buy a thing and the knock-on effect is that it has yeah. some adverse and we learn of it, what are we to do? So complicity mean like we should very, boycott Starbucks, yeah, like I mean, that so, kind of stuff? Yeah, we've always had these kind of th- – <laughs> yeah, exactly, or Disney or whatever. We always have these senses that um, – we're we're somehow once or, we're somehow remo- uh, involved ethically, but we're not sometimes quite sure how that works out. So there's all kinds of very interesting puzzles about complicity, and there's lots of great work being done on that. Um, another very fruitful and important line of in- of, of inquiry in Christian ethics is in uh, medicine and, and bioethics, um, particularly with just all the technology that medicine is making possible, uh, from from surrogacy to you know, um, new developments in genetic enhancement and transhumanism and all this stuff. I mean, we're only just beginning to kind of get our head around some of what's possible because of these advances. But it's absolutely essential that Christians and particularly Christian ethicists are kind of thinking about what's happening and what sort of uh, challenges these developments bring. I mean, some of them are not. So some medical advances are really important and good and deserve affirmation and deserve funding and so on, but some of them aren't. We need to really think carefully about that. So that's another really important one. I could mention lots of other ones about warfare and and weapons technology, that kind of thing. But um, myself, um, I've been involved for about three years now in a research project on deceit. And that's um, kind of stalled a little bit, but I hope to pick it back up sometime in the next few months. Um, so a theological inquiry into deceit. Um, another topic, a uh, smaller one, is a more accessible project on um, temperance. So I'm trying to bring finally some crystallization to a basic kind of introductory accessible thing on um, temperance. Just all kinds of things in life, like just general temperance yeah. in life. Yeah, yeah. So um, what, does it mean, what does it mean to have the virtue of patience today. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not quite sure how in method that's going to be pulled off just yet, but that's another thing. And then a little bit further, I've begun working on it, but it's probably a, a more prolonged project is um, a theological ethics. Um, it's going to take a few years to sort of bring together, but I'm going to start embarking on it. What will 
be a kind of baptistic, not uh, the, the, not Baptist, a, but Baptistic. Yeah, Baptistic. That's right. Um, theological ethics that um, I think expresses something about what I think the moral life should be like. I'm, I'm more patient with that one. I don't feel like it has any urgency. I'm, yeah, that, that's anywhere from an introductory textbook to a magnum opus, right? Depending yeah, on how you yeah write exactly it. right. So yeah. it's about conception at this point. So those are a few things kind of lingering around there. Yeah, talk about your uh, talk about your new book a little bit too. Oh, um, thanks. That just came out. Yeah. Yeah. So walking through infertility is um, a book that was initially provoked by some personal experience by some immediate family who had gone through that for several years. And then um, over, over, several, over a course of several more years, um, some pastoral challenges that came up as I became an elder at our church and um, the questions that that prompted for us as we offer pastoral advice or counsel for couples who uh, may have that experience, want to know what they can do, want to know what the church or elders think about um, options going forward. They have some questions. So anyway, th- so it's a personal pastoral reasons, but um, the book is just meant to be a resource, particularly for couples who may be experiencing infertility, but also for pastors and church leaders. So, so they have something they can turn to. And what, um, what are some, uh, without giving the whole book away, what yeah. are some some things that you talk about in there that you think are helpful that maybe people would make people want to go read the rest oh, yeah. of it. So the kind of the subtitles biblical theological and moral counsel for those who are struggling. So and the, the chapters kind of fall in those lines. So the first part is kind of an exploration of the biblical theme and because it, it because it comes up regularly in Genesis. Why why does it come up there? Why does it come up in Luke? Um, what's the meaning of those narratives? Is it that God always triumphs over infertility or is there some deeper thing that God wants us? So I kind of explore that, draw out that second part um, a little more clearly. And um, I, what I try to do is help, um, particularly couples who are experiencing this, to see um, themselves as part of a bigger picture. I, th- I think for a lot of couples who are experiencing this either early on or even well advanced in the years, um, they they will sometimes... Uh, the, 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 the experience will become totalizing. It sort of takes all the attention, absorbs all the oxygen. And I think it's important to sort of step back and see who they are in the wider picture of what God has done. And uh, so that's a lot of what I'm doing in that section. Also some theological stuff about um, the meaning of discipleship, stipulations we place on discipleship, but also um, the kinds of um, obligations and duties we have as participants in the church that um, we are interdependent as a community and that the church community needs single Christians. It needs married Christians. It needs um, families with children. It needs families without children. And um, it draws all kinds. And it's important for couples to kind of see themselves as part of a church, which is eclectic and sometimes unpredictable. And then um, then there's the latter part of the book is kind of surveying the um, – the ethics of infertility, particularly reproductive technology. So I kind of talk about how uh, treatment tends to be furnished or proposed to couples by um, practitioners and then kind of also offer some moral guidelines for defining specific limits about what they you know, maybe shouldn't proceed on and why and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, final question, most important yeah. question. CrossFit. Yes. Explain to me why CrossFit is not a cult. In in one minute, it is kind of cultish. Uh, So I'm going to call him out. John Mark Gates at Midwestern Drew. So he's the one. He was the initial evangelist. He was my John the Baptist, and (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and I I, admittedly I thought it was a bit 
the whole thing was a bit cliche, but it's been, it's been great for me. And, uh, but it, it is interesting. It does, it does very much in its inner life as a cultural kind of thing, mimic religious life. <laughs> right, There's yeah. no question, right. From the coaching to the, um, to the cheering of one another in particular endeavor, you know, there's no doubt it mimics religious activity, but man, I sure do love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's funny too, is even though I make fun of it, uh, you and I both kind of share an affinity for exercise and working out and yeah. whatever. And you have, you got me hooked on a particular CrossFit workout for like a couple of weeks. You're basically like, you gotta do all this in 25 minutes. Yeah. And it took me like two weeks to do it. And I was like all in on it. And then I was like, okay, give me another one. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like halfway there. I'm just not paying for it. So yeah, if you're, if you're in, if you're, if you're inwardly motivated and self, like kind of self-competitive, it's irresistible. Yeah, it's so true. That's exactly what it is. I'm like, I will do this until I break it. And then as soon as I broke it, I was like, give me something else. Yeah, so I'm not yeah. gonna try to make it better. I just want to beat it and move yeah. on. So yeah. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you. Yeah, I had a great me, time. Man.